Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series presented by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Dylan Fadden. On this episode, I talked to Meenakshi Gigi Durham, an SJMC professor and the author of Me Too, The Impact of Rape Culture in the Media. My name is Meenakshi Gigi Durham. I'm a professor here in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and I have a joint appointment in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies because my main research area is feminist media studies. At the moment, I'm also director of the nonfiction writing program. I have a background in journalism. I was a journalist in the US and overseas. Um, and what led me to this point? Well, um, I got a PhD in mass communication and I was uh, interested in teaching and also conducting research, um, especially on media representations of genders and sexualities from an intersectional, intersectional feminist um, point of view. And uh, yeah, I've been at the University of Iowa 20 years now, almost 21. As you mentioned, you've been studying media in relation to kind of sexual assault and misconduct and gender for quite some time now. So what inspired your most recent book about the Me Too movement? Um, in some ways, the book is kind of a natural next step from the work that I've been doing for a very long time, most of my career. Um, so I have been studying, you know, media representations of genders and sexualities. I got interested in it, I guess, um, in graduate school. Uh, I was working with the Sexual Assault Recovery Service at the time, which was one of the first in the country, actually. Um, Nowadays, most universities have something like this. You know, we have RBAP here, but back then it was very rare. And I started to think about whether the media was playing a role in sexual violence against women. Um, so I began, actually, I started looking at the places where women's sexuality was sort of most um, obviously being portrayed, like in women's magazines and fashion and beauty magazines. And so one of my first papers was about like the portrayal of women's sexuality in Cosmo. And as you can imagine it was just egregious you know it's all about sort of 50 ways to please please your man and things like that you know it's all about sort of women having to change their bodies and act in ways that you know it's very heterosexual dynamic it's very much about women having to attract you know male attention and so on um and uh, overall it's pretty appalling really <laughs> especially at the time um and then right around the sort of mid 90s um a whole spate of research came out about girls and uh, these books uh, some of some people may remember them like reviving ophelia or uh, peggy ornstein's book school girls were showing that girls were encountering a crisis in early adolescence that boys weren't and it was leading to um you know uh, things like depression eating disorders um um, you know, not they weren't doing as well in school, they were being tracked away from STEM fields. And, you know, and even then there were, you know, they just, you know, in general, adolescents seem to represent a sort of crisis for girls, according to this research. And so I became, I got kind of interested in, um, you know, what uh, media aimed at adolescents, uh, you know, how, how uh, those media were constructing girls sexuality. Um, and so I started studying them, you know, magazines like Seventeen and YM, which were very popular at the time. And if anything, it was maybe even worse <laughs> than in the uh, magazines and media that were aimed at um, grown women. And then I began thinking about how girls themselves were dealing with this. So I went into middle schools and I did ethnographic field work, you know, just kind of I sort of almost lived for five months in two middle schools, um, you know, listening to the kids and talking to them. And so, you know, my research up to now has been on this subject. Um, I wrote a book in 2008 called The Lolita Effect that was based on my work with adolescents. Um, 
I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Technosex about the ways in which the media environment is sort of engaging with the physicality of sexuality. It was a much more academic book. And so this book kind of represents the, a sort of natural next step um, in that work. But it was also inspired by hearing Tarana Burke speak here at the university a couple of years ago. And she was so incredible that it kind of catalyzed some reflection on, again, the role of the media in the Me Too movement. And I know you just touched on kind of like how your previous um, research and pieces of works kind of like led up to this point too. Does this new book kind of like venture off into any new areas or how does this new book differ from your previous pieces of work? Yeah, I mean, in one way it sort of fits with all of my previous work, but in another way it, it does venture into some new territory um, <clears throat> because um, I'm looking really closely at rape culture, which has kind of been a theme in some of my previous writing, but in this one, I'm sort of really focusing the lens on that. And I'm also, you know, I've always looked at the role of the media, but but in this book, I'm taking a sort of broader look and I'm uh, investigating the media, not just as a site of representation and not just a site in which, you know, that people respond to as audiences, but I'm also looking at media organizations as uh, kind of a, a petri dish for, for rape culture, because a lot of the Me Too movement was focused on um, sexual abuse and violence in the workplace. And um, it really, we, I mean, of course, it's been happening in lots of workplaces, you know, for many, many years, but we, the Me Too movement, uh, at least in its, in, in its post-Tarana Burke incarnation, you know, when Alyssa Milano tweeted and all that, um, it really drew attention to the media workplaces that were the site of so much of this, you know, the Weinstein Corporation and CBS News and um, Fox News. And, you know, it really struck me that these media corporations were um, worth studying because they provided kind of archetypes and, um, you know, very visible spaces in which we could really see how this worked. So, so I guess that's, that's kind of new. And the other thing that's sort of new is I was looking at how the organizations and the media in general contributed not only to the silence breaking around rape culture, but also silencing. And those are two aspects that I'm, uh, you know, that are sort of new in this work. And then kind of, I guess, just over the last 10 years or so, even social media has begun to become heavily integrated into our society. Can you kind of touch on how that has impacted rape culture? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, social media are like a crucial key site of rape culture. Social media amplified the Me Too movement. It called attention to Toronto Burke's earlier work. Um, and it also almost instantly connected survivors worldwide in both a community of support and healing and also anti-rape activism. I mean, this kind of work had been going on long before. I mean, before Alyssa Milano tweeted or anything. I mean, you know, of course, now everyone knows that Tarana Brooks started this, you know, decades before that. But um, that hashtag actually had an incredible impact. Um, it, it really did like amplify the whole notion of a um, community of survivors, of speaking the truth, of um, people getting together to combat rape. Um, but also I would say on the flip side, social media are also, you know, a place that fosters rape culture. Um, I have a chapter in my book about, um, you know, cyber sexual crimes, cyber, you know, cyber stalking and revenge porn and those sorts of things. And also, um, uh, you know, there are like, there's a whole lot of like blogs and forums and websites that are devoted <clears throat> to discussing um, 
not just discussing, but actually um, advancing violence against women. You know, like Reddit has this um, community of so-called incels, involuntary celibates, and um, they really have like a, you know, they just perpetuate the notion of, of violence against women and, um, um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, ways of treating women that are just completely, um, you know, oppressive and abusive. So, so I think social media is also contributing to rape culture. This may be a difficult question, but how do you kind of weigh out the pros and cons of that? Um, and like, kind of like, how do, how do you anticipate that playing a factor moving forward into like the future, I guess? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to take it all into account, of course, you know, because the media is such a complicated, complex, you know, uh, terrain. It's, it's not all one thing or another. And so, I, you know, we, I think we have to like weigh all of that. But, uh, you know, my focus is really on, you know, the, the progressive anti-rape uh, activism that can happen in media spaces and places and, and has happened. But I think also in, in recognizing the more oppressive and dangerous and damaging aspects of it, um, you know, we could, you know, sort of take steps to counter them. And some of those steps have been taken, you know, there are communities online like Hollaback, you know, pushing back against, uh, you, know, so, you know, especially cyber crimes and, um, um, you know, that kind of, the kind of cyber sex that has really harmed women. Um, what we also need to do now is sort of move it more into the realm of, you know, uh, law and policy and really make sure that there are, um, you know, active steps taken to both um, protect survivors and help survivors and also shut down, um, uh, you know, or, or at least try to, to, to ensure that um, people who are engaging in that sort of thing are, are you know, punished for it really, you know, or penalized for it. Sure, yeah. This is, yeah. Um, and then I kind of wanted to dive into more uh, the research aspect mm -hmm. of preparing for a book such as this. Um, so I guess really just what kind of like goes into like the preparation? How long does it take you? What kind of research are you doing? Is it like more hands-on research or are you just kind of like going through statistics? I guess all that stuff. Well, for this book, unlike my previous books, you know, for other, for especially for the Lolita effect, as I said, I went into the middle schools and I did a lot of, you know, field work and interviews and, you know, took time in those spaces. For this book was more based on what they call secondary sources, you know, where I was just reading a lot of different textual materials and gathering information on, uh, you know, reports on what had happened in, for example, you know, at Fox News, you know, some of those legal actions that were taken or um, uh, the, there was a report that was done actually on the NPR, uh, you know, newsroom uh, by an outside agency. And so I read that report. So I was reading those kinds of sources. I did some um, original research, um, for example, analyzing uh, the Time Magazine Silence Breakers issue, um, looking at media coverage of the Larry Nassar trial, um, you know, those kinds of things. So I did some text analysis, um, but a lot of it was, it was, you know, sort of, the approach to it was really conceptual, like framing and reflecting on the, the you know, rape culture and the media as, you know, as I said, sort of a, a site of both silencing and silence breaking. What kind of advice could you give to uh, current students that may be interested in more of the research side and like writing books rather than just kind of like short form journalism, such as articles? Mm hmm. Well, I mean, I don't want to state the obvious, but writing a book must take more time than writing an article for sure. Right. Um, advice. Um, 
I first of all find something you feel really passionate about because it is going to be a long drawn out process. You have to take, you know, spend time really and, you know, doing the research, you know, thinking through it, organizing your chapters, um, figuring out how you're going to make a new contribution um, in terms of what you're writing about. So, so I think if you find something that really lights you up, the book is going to be good um, just because no one's going to, no one wants to read about anything that, you know, the writer isn't interested in. And if the writer's interested in it, it's going to be terrific. Um, some of it is really, really understanding how to do research, which is something, you know, especially uh, I think students have to learn a lot about, like under recognizing what constitutes credible sources, um, understanding peer reviewed journals, for example, taking advantage of the tremendous resources we have at the UI libraries. We have sort of more than a million resources and I think they're terribly underused uh, by students in particular. So, um, but we have, you know, fantastic access to, to research here to um, wonderful sources of information, also experts on campus. So I think a lot of the skills that you learn in J school actually are great for writing a book. You learn how to conduct interviews. You, you learn how to, you know, you do learn how to find um, uh, credible textual sources of information to support your claims. You learn how to ask good questions. And I think all of those are, you know, great preparation for writing a book. <laughs> what do you see for your next publication in the future? Yeah, I'm actually working on something right now. Um, this book, towards the conclusion of it, one of the things that I, um, that I say in my conclusions is that one of the great um, contributions of anti-rape activism and the Me Too movement and so on um, has been to recognize vulnerability as a source of strength. I mean, we've always typically thought of vulnerability as something weak or passive or something that we don't want to acknowledge. But for me, vulnerability is the starting point for resistance. And um, Me Too was sort of a, a, you know, a recognition that when survivors could share their vulnerability, you know, survivors from all different backgrounds, not just, you know, people who identify as women, but trans people, people of color, you know, you know, male identified people who have been victims of silent sexual violence and so on. Just speaking the truth of the vulnerability actually led to uh, resistance against, uh, you know, sexual violence. And so, so I'm going to start thinking in more depth about Vulnerability is a starting point for social justice, and I'm all kinds of vulnerability: environmental, sexual, um, you know, identity-based, all kinds of vulnerability. And so that's my next project. Awesome. And then I guess just kind of to wrap it up, could you just tell us uh, where your book will be available, and kind of like, is there a copy at the Student Center, or where can people go to read this new book? Okay, so um, it's being published by Polity Press, and so. It is on the Polity website. I think if you just sort of Google Me Too Polity, it'll pop up. Uh, it's not in print yet. It's uh, it's pretty much ready to go. It'll be out in April, I believe, in the UK, and then in June in the US. And as soon as it is, I am very sure that the Resource Center is going to acquire a copy because they always do get copies of faculty books. So it will be there to check out and read. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, you can find us at uiowa.edu backslash sjmc. For more episodes of the podcast, you can subscribe to our channel.